This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the big change program with Josh Lajani and Well Start Health. But that's a story I'll tell you in a little bit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an inspired and influential life. So today's guest is Dr. Tali Sharot. She is an Associate Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London, and she is Director of the Affective Brain Lab. Affective, with an A, as in emotions and motivation. Brain, as in the three-pound lump in your skull. And what she does is shows us how to navigate the intricacies and predictable biases of minds, our own and those of others. And I was browsing in Barnes & Noble, and I saw a new book called The Influential Mind, what the brain reveals about our power to change others. And when I saw that title, I knew I had to discover what she knows about influence, how we can do it well, and how we can often screw it up. And I wasn't disappointed because I have read so many books on persuasion and influence, and few of them are really scientifically rigorous and practical. And so I was delighted when Dr. Sharot agreed to talk about her insights and recommendations on the podcast And um, the Atlantic Ocean, which is often very obstreperous when it comes to facilitating Skype calls, cooperated beautifully. So we were able to achieve what us professional podcasters refer to as darn good audio quality. My aspiration for this interview is that it can serve as a field guide for those of us who are out in the world trying to change people's hearts and minds, trying to get them to do things differently, better, and how we can be effective as opposed to just merely right. So without further ado, Tali Sharot, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be talking to you. I've just been reading and rereading your wonderful book, The Influential Mind, What the Brain Reveals About Our Power to Change Others. And I'd love to start by just asking you, like, what got you interested in this topic? Because I know your previous work was on optimism. And I'm, cur- I'm always curious about sort of, you know, the, the intellectual journey of someone who does really great groundbreaking work. Like, w- what led you to be interested in this in the first place? Um, well, the, the book is about how we form beliefs and how we make decisions and how emotion changes those beliefs and those decisions. Um, and that's really what, what I study. Um, the idea of looking at that and then asking, well, what can we do with that in terms of, changing behaviors and beliefs in others and also understanding how others change our behavior and beliefs um, I think comes just from um, everyday interactions you know this is something that we encounter in our lives every day Um, speaking you know if I I think about myself speaking and interacting with uh, my family with my colleagues with my students Um, So the science is just a science that that I've been doing, my lab has been doing for many, many years. Um, And it's just kind of the application that may be a bit new. I see. So what got you interested in this, in the general topic of beliefs and decisions in the first place? Um, Well, um, it started, I did my PhD on um, emotional memories. So how we remember emotional events in our past. Um, That led to how we imagine emotional events in our future. That then led to um, the discovery of um, a few findings that led to the optimism bias. And the optimism bias is related to how we think about the future and how we make decisions. Um, And so for making decisions to beliefs, I mean, they're all kind of connected. So... You know, it doesn't really boil down to one specific thing. Right. Now, a lot of, a lot of your work is sort of rooted, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, in, in sort of behavioral economics and sort of this, this renegade understanding of the human mind as something that's not rational and reliable. So, you know, so the work of, uh, you know, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky and, and, and others who've, who followed in, in their footsteps. Would, would you agree that your work is sort of informed and part of that exploration? Yeah, absolutely. My work um, brings together psychology, economics, and neuroscience. Um, And it's, you know, the type of questions that I ask are very much um, related to the type of question that people ask in in the field of behavioral economics, including Daniel Kahneman and others. 
I did my um, undergraduate degree in both psychology and economics, um, and then I did my PhD in neuroscience and psychology. So it's really kind of a mix of all of these things together. Because mm-hmm. like, one of the things I was getting from reading your book, and it, it wasn't as bad as it might have been if I hadn't already, you know, read um, Danny Kahneman's book and Dan Ariely's book and, and Thaler and Sunstein's book, but but basically, I'm horrified by what the research tells me about the unreliability of my own mind and my own brain and my own decision-making process. And I'm wondering, like, did you, when you, when you started on this path, was there a moment where you, you, you had that sort of epiphany that, boy, humans are not as smart or as self-aware as we think we are, and we really need to, to understand the levers and the mechanisms that are, that are yanking our chains or, um, did you sort of take that in stride? I think it was a little bit of the other way around. So the um, the science and the research just validated what I saw around me throughout my life. <laughs> so, so I think I was always aware that what we believe and what we see um, is not actually what is necessarily true. Uh, we definitely, you definitely see it in other people, but I think I was also able to see it in myself. So that is something that was always very apparent to me. Um, and from that to actually be able to show it in um, experiments where you really control from any variables in a scientific manner, that was very exciting. Huh. That's that's really interesting because that uh, I, I don't I don't know if that's typical for someone to sort of sort of see through the the, the veil to uh, to the fact that we are unreliable. Um, so, I mean, the first study that, that you talk about that had me sort of squirming was the, the skin rash gun control study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the, can, the study from uh, Yale University. Yeah, can you talk about that and what, what that means for mm-hmm. what we should take away from that? So that's a study by Don Kahan from uh, Yale University. And what they showed is that people with better math skills are actually more likely to twist data at will to make it fit with what they want to believe. So what they did, the first thing they did is they um, asked 1,000 Americans to complete um, some math tests. And based on that test, they divided them into those with very good math and analytical skills and those with uh, not so good math and analytical skills. Then they gave them two sets of data. The first data set, they said, is looking at whether skin treatment is helping skin rashes. And so they said, please look at the data, analyze the data, and tell us whether the skin treatment is helping with rashes. And so unsurprisingly, those with better math skills did better at this test. Then they gave them another set of data, and they told them this set of data is looking at whether gun control laws are reducing crime. Look at the data, analyze the data, and tell us whether gun control um, laws are reducing crime. Now, of course, the difference here is that people had very strong opinions about gun control. And it turned out that those strong um, emotional opinions that they had interfered with their ability to analyze the data accurately. And in fact, those with better math skills did worse. So it seemed that people were using their skills not necessarily to reach the most accurate conclusions, but rather to um, twist data and and use their skills to get the the results that they want and to find fault with the data that they were unhappy with. Right. And and that should worry us, I think, because... Right, we we tend in 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 our society, well, at least re- until recently, to sort of defer to experts. And so, if we're look, if we're trying to figure out, you know, as, as my audience is very interested in, what's the best way to eat? What what are the things we know that can make us healthy? And you have a scientist, a researcher, who has an opinion, and and however they came to that opinion, whether it was by a single study or a previous bias, or they like a certain type of food. Um, that we, we, we kind of think that, well, but they're a serious researcher, they're good at statistics, they know how to do regression analysis and, and create the right power tables. We, th- we assume that's, that's going to help correct for it. But, but you say this study actually suggests that the better they are at data, the more they're going to twist it to support their preconception. Right. So, you know, if you think about the scientific community, there's, I guess, good news and bad news. The bad news is exactly what you say which is, as a scientist, you have very strong hypothesis um, and you're motivated to believe them. You know, if I have a theory, 
um, let's say, the optimism bias, right? I'm then motivated to find data to support that theory. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the bad news, that we have the skills, but also we have the strong opinions. Now, the good news is that it's not that scientists are not aware of that. And as an institution, uh, we do put some uh, barriers and rules to help us out with this problem. And, um, you know, the, the policy that's out there is that in order to publish something, uh, in order to make a claim, it's not only about what you believe and how you look at the data, but it has to go to other people who um, are impartial. They don't necessarily support one hypothesis or the other, or maybe some of the people support one side and the other support the other side, but all of these people have to review um, your study and to find it either um, have merit to publishing or not. These people will have to review to find merit and whether you should get funding to, to um, do your experiments and so on and so forth. And so, yes, there are biases. Um, and I think everyone, I mean, most people are aware of it. And, you know, if we're aware of it. And then at the same time, it's still it's still something that happens. Um, and as I said, the good news is that there are policies in place to to make those problems smaller. It's not going to go away, but hopefully it will help. Well, I think, you know, I, I believe that other people have confirmation bias, but I have the facts. <laughs> like, 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 that's my felt sense, is that it's obvious to me that I'm right. right. And anyone who disagrees with me is suffering from confirmation bias, which, of course, <laughs> is, is a suspect position. Um, and, and I kind of want to highlight that because, like, one of the things I want people to understand from our conversation is, you know, how to have the tools to to convince other people. And so, you know, diet is one of those things that most people have an opinion on. And so what, what, do we, what can we do to understanding that other people have confirmation bias and maybe the smarter they are, the stronger they can wield that confirmation bias, what can we do to influence others, assu you know, just assuming we're right? Uh -huh. um, which of course is, you know, is a crazy assumption, but just for the sake of argument, if we wanna, right. if we wanna um, you know, defeat someone else's confirmation bias. We obviously can't just throw more facts at them. Right. So the idea of the influential mind, the book, is to go along with all these biases. Um, the kind of main idea of the book is that these biases, and when I say bias, I mean bias in how, in the process, in how we process information. It's not biases in the content. So it's not like racial biases. You know, I think, you know, that one uh, group is better than the other. That's not what I mean when I say biases. I mean, I mean, very evolutionary old ways um, in how we process information. And so the idea of the, the book is that we, those biases have evolved over many, 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 many years, um, millions of years. And so they're very hard to change. The biases and how we process information is hard to change. But if we could use them, if we can go along with the biases, we can perhaps change beliefs and opinions. Um, and so if you talk about the confirmation bias, well, one thing to do is can we go along with the confirmation bias when we want to change opinions, right? Can we start with something that everyone believes in? Can we start by um, talking about a belief that the other person actually shares with us um, or a motivation that they share with us? And let me give you one example. So this is an example um, of a study that was conducted at UCLA where they wanted to convince parents that were reluctant to vaccinate their kids because of the alleged link to autism. And now the uh, common way of what health professionals tend to do when they try to change opinions of parents who are reluctant to vaccinate their kids is to show them all the data to say, hey, there's no um, no relationship between vaccines, childhood vaccines and autism. And the problem is that those parents who don't want, who don't want to vaccinate their kids, they already have an opinion. And these data, they don't really change their minds much. But then they tried another, another route. They said, well, can we get to the same outcome? Have parents vaccinate their kids, but without focusing on what we disagree on? Can we focus on something that we agree on? And so what they did is they highlighted the fact that these vaccines protect kids from potentially deadly diseases, measles, mumps, rubella. So this is not something that the parents disagreed, right? It was something that they agreed on, but it seemed to have been forgotten in the heated debate. And by focusing on these things that they agreed on, they were able to change parents' intent to vaccinate their kids three times as much than the normal approach, 
right? Then showing them figures that just suggest there isn't a link to autism. So it's it's something to think about. You know, in, in a lot of debates, there are always something that we agree on. And so can we start with that? Can we use that to our advantage? Hmm. And and I guess what you know, you're you divided into different chapters and there is a sort of a social chapter and a chapter, you know, around connection. But it sounds like this was also that we are when when I find something that I agree with you on, we are drawn closer together emotionally, right? Yes, we're, that's we're not true. just butting heads. Right, right, right. I mean, if, if someone is, I feel that someone is like me in opinion or any other way, well, I tend to like them more, for sure. I tend to listen more. We had a study where we actually recorded the brain activity of pairs of individuals who made decisions together. So we had two people come into the lab. We recorded their brain activity in two separate MRI machines, but while they were interacting with each other um, over the Wi-Fi. And what we found was that when the two people agreed, they were making decisions, financial decisions, they were assessing real estate, that doesn't really matter. When they agreed, each person's brain showed precise activity encoding the opinion of the other person, right? They were really attending, attending to the other person's opinion, taking it in. But when they disagreed, um, we could not really find uh, a brain activity that showed that they were listening. It was if the brain was kind of shutting down, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. So yes, when the other person is agreeing with us, we're more open to what they're saying. And so we're more likely to take in the, the little details that they are conveying to us. And as you say, we're more likely to like people who are similar to us. And that's, you know, you talk about sort of the evolutionary um, rationale for some of these. This one sounds really crazy to me, that we would have a brain that automatically by default wants to discard anything that doesn't already uh, agree with what we believe. Can, can you just sort of help me understand why, why we would be that way? Right. So actually, almost all of these biases in how we process information are for a very good reason. They're optimal on average. And so if we take the confirmation bias as an example, well, imagine that I told you that I saw a pink elephant flying in the sky. Well, you would then assume that I'm delusional or, or I'm lying, right, as you should. Because on average, when we encounter a piece of evidence that conflicts with a belief that we hold strongly, in this case, the belief that elephants don't fly in the sky, that piece of evidence is usually wrong. So usually when you find a piece of evidence that contradicts a strongly held belief, that piece of evidence is wrong. Now, it's not always the case but it's more often true than not true. And that's why our brain has evolved to take in information that is closer to what we already believe. So when a piece of evidence is quite far away from a strongly held belief, it's less likely to change it. Um, and that's not an irrational way to change beliefs, but it also means that strongly held beliefs are very difficult to change even when they are false. Hmm. I guess our, our brains haven't evolved over millions of years to deal with statistics and abstractions, right? If, we, if you and I were arguing 30,000 years ago, we'd probably be arguing about like a rock or a bush or a stick or a herd of animals, right? Not, not a, um, you know, a, a nutritional protocol. Right. And then that, that kind of trigger that brings to light a whole different problem and not the problem that we have with like understanding statistics and understanding numbers and so on and so forth. And that's right. Um, we tend to form a beliefs based on our experiences. And um, that is much stronger for us than just statistics. So if we know someone, for example, that um, I start I start the book with with actually a debate that it's very similar to this, a debate between Trump um, and Ben Carson. And they were actually arguing about um, whether autism caused vaccines. And this was uh, in the Republican debate. And uh, Ben Carson was trying to convince Trump and the viewers that there isn't a lick. And he was trying to convince the viewers by saying, well, there's a lot of studies and all these studies show quite clearly that there isn't a link and there's statistics to support this and so on and so forth. So he was kind of trying to kind of um, connect with our cere cerebral part, right, to um, mm. give us statistics. And then Trump, on the other hand, said, hey, look, I know someone, my employee, who had a little baby and the baby went to get a vaccine 
And after he got the vaccine, he became very, very ill, and, and eventually he had autism. So he was giving an example, right, that he knew from real life. And those examples tend to change our beliefs more than just numbers and statistics on average, right? Automatically, it will change, it tends to change our belief more. We really need to kind of stop ourselves and say, hey, look, this is just one example. What we call in science, this is an N of one. You know, this is one person, right? Versus very millions, uh, thousands of other people. Um, but if you, if you know someone and if you have examples from your own life, that's very powerful. And it's also powerful in changing other people's mind. A story of a person, um, of an incident, is, tends to be more powerful than just numbers. Right. I guess our, our brains have evolved to, to understand, to speak in story rather than, rather than numbers. Right. Absolutely. I mean, stories are, that are important. It's what the brain is trying to do all the time, is trying to connect the dots by creating some kind of a story. Um, and we have evolved to learn from the people around us um, and from our own experiences and not from more abstract things like numbers. I mean, we can do it, and we do it, um, but it's a bit more ethical. Mm-hmm. So, so to to help my audience put this into practice, let's say you know we're we believe in a, a largely plant based diet, and so we're we're hanging out over the holidays, and uh, you know Uncle Phil is a, a, a strident devotee of, of paleo or ketogenic diet. So instead, so what my natural inclination would be would be to argue. And point out all the studies that show the the, uh, the evidence for the, um, the superiority of, of of my diet, and you're you're saying maybe let's start with something we can agree upon, which might be in this case processed food that that humans didn't have access to in, in Paleolithic times is not good for us. Like we can agree on like sugar and Twinkies and uh, and Krispy Kremes, right? Yeah. So, so I think I think that example actually um, uh, ties into something else, which is what we want to believe. When it comes to food, if we enjoy eating meat, um, then we don't want to believe that that's not the right thing to do, right? So we have a, a very strong motivation to believe that. So another way to uh, convince people is to show the benefits of the other route. Um, you know, so if you say, well, if you, I've tried this and if you eat this way, you feel so much better and it's tastier and it's cheaper. So, you know, try to highlight, um, the rewards that one can get from taking a particular action in this case, eating in a certain way. Mm. Which I get brings me to the, the chapter that I think more, more than any other changed how I do go, how I do my work which was the one on sort of emotions and incentives, mm-hmm. which I, I just, it was, and after reading it, it was like so obvious, but I had never, ever thought about it. So can you talk about the, the, the go, no-go circuit and when to use like benefits and when to use, uh, you know, threats? Yeah, so um, the, the, the question in that chapter is, you know, to try to change behavior, you usually do one of two things. You usually promise people some kind of reward, right? If you do this, you will gain more money. If you do this, I will love you more. Or you um, threaten them with with uh, something negative. So if you don't work hard enough, you're going to lose your job. If you know you're not nice enough to me, I'm, I'm going to leave you. And so the question is, should we just use rewards and punishments as you know randomly, or is there kind of some kind of a pattern that would work better? And so there is really nice research by um, a group of people, specifically Mark Gitart Masip, who's a colleague. And what they've showed is that there is a system in the brain called go-no-go. Now think about it like this. To get the good stuff in life, whether it is a chocolate cake or um, promotion or love, we usually need to act. We need to do something in order to get the good stuff right? Put our hand out in order to get that chocolate. And often to um, avoid the bad stuff in life, in life, we normally need to not do anything. We need to just stay where we are, not approach. So for example, to avoid poison or deep waters or untrustworthy people, we usually need to just not act, stay away, right? 
And so the brain has evolved um, in this environment where there is a connection between actions and rewards and between avoiding punishment and not acting. And so when we anticipate something good, when we anticipate a reward, there's a go signal in our brain that makes action more likely. And when we anticipate something bad, when we anticipate a punishment, there's a no-go signal in our brain that inhibits action. So what does all of this mean? It means that perhaps if you're trying to uh, convince someone to do something, perhaps your kids to um, tidy up the room, you might say, well, if you tidy up your room, you might find the toy that you love so much at the bottom of the pile. So you're promising a reward, right? Or if it's an employee, you might say, well, if you do this um, project and you do it well, uh, you get a promotion. But when you're trying to convince someone not to do something, your child not to eat the cookie, you might actually um, prevent them by threatening with a punishment. So if you eat the cookie, uh, then you don't get to play a game, for example. Or your employee, um, you might say, well, you don't want them to share privileged information, right? You want them not to act, not to speak, then a punishment may be the correct approach. So you say, well, if you uh, share privileged information, there will be a punishment, right? So uh, pair rewards with actions and punishments with inactions. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the subheadings of, of that chapter is hope stimulates quick action. So what, what is it about hope in particular that, uh, that, that is correlated to, to speed? Right. When I say hope, um, it is more um, when you hope some, for something, you normally hope for something good, right? I mean, you could hope for something bad not to happen. But usually when, when we say we hope for something, we usually hope for health, we, we hope for, you know, financial security, we hope for something specific that we want a reward. Um, and so just as I said, when we expect something good, a reward, that makes us act. And not only does it make us act, it, made, it makes us act more quickly. So, for example, in a study that we conducted that was led by Mark Gidot Masip, Um, What we found was that when you tell people, if you press a button, we'll give you $1, they press the button faster than if you tell them, if you press the button, we will take away a dollar, right? So expecting something good makes them act faster. And so that's the idea there. Wait, so so if they press the the second one, if they press the button, then they they would lose a dollar or they wouldn't have a dollar? Lose a dollar. So the first one is, if you press the button, we will give you a dollar. That's a reward. And the second one, if you press the button, we will take away a dollar. So that's a punishment, right? And so in the first case, they press the button faster because they're expecting something good. They're expecting a reward. Expectations of a reward makes actions more likely and more fast. Right. I'm just trying to figure out why they would press the button at all if they're going to lose a dollar. Oh, so (laughs) you will avoid losing a dollar. Sorry. I see. Okay. If you press the button, you avoid losing a dollar. So you avoid a punishment. I see. So you've got a stack of dollars in front of you. So if I'm doing the experiment, I've got a button, in, a console with a button. And right. you say, ready, press the button. Now press the button and I'll give you a dollar and I'll do it quickly. And then you'd say, press the button and I won't take one of those dollars away from you. Mm-hmm. And I would, I'm just as, I'm probably, I'm twice as motivated according to a loss aversion but I'll still do it slower because I'm trying to, I'm, my brain wants to inhibit action. So yeah, expectation of punishment inhibits action. That's, that's so cool. And, and the other thing I took away from the idea of hope is like, if you, if you tell your kid, you know, clean your room and you might find the toy, if they've been searching for the toy, they might not have, a, they might not have a lot of hope. So even though the thing might be good, they might not, really believe it's going to happen. And so my favorite part of the book is you reinterpreting the famous uh, Walter Michel marshmallow study. Can you, because I think it relates to this idea of Mm -hmm. of hope about the future. Um, Can you talk about this? Because this this just blew my mind. Yeah, so the marshmallow study is, you know, everyone knows about the marshmallow study. I'll I'll explain it in one, in, in as briefly as I can. But the idea here is that Um, I think the popular interpretation is not necessarily the only interpretation. So um, the famous study is you put kids in front of a marshmallow and you say, 
um, well, I'm going to leave um, the room for a few minutes. If you don't eat the marshmallow when I come back, I will give you two, right? Um, and then it's very, very difficult for little kids to sit in front of a marshmallow and not put it in their mouth. And so not everyone succeeds, but some do. And the question was, what happens to these kids when they grow up? So what they found was those that were able to um, wait for the second marshmallow, they were more likely to be successful in life, more likely to have a, you know, a family, more likely to have a good job, and so on and so forth. The uh, common interpretation is that if you do not eat mar the marshmallow, that means that you um, have self-control. And it's that self-control that leads you to a better life. So the second uh, possibility here is that, well, maybe those kids that wait around for the second marshmallow are the ones who believe the researcher. They believe that the researcher will come back with a second marshmallow, right? They are optimistic. They trust the, the people. And maybe that kid that sits and just eats the first marshmallow straight away when the researcher leaves, um, maybe he's a kid that doesn't really trust other people. Or maybe he's a kid that is not optimistic. So he's not sure if the, second, the researcher will come back with a second marshmallow. He thinks, well, maybe he won't have any marshmallows. Um, you know, he will run out. Um, or all these bad things can happen. Might as well just eat the one that I have. Or maybe he even thinks, well, if the, you know, if I don't eat it now, maybe he'll take it away from me. Maybe there's another kid that I'll have to share it with. So, you know, another possibility is that those that wait are the optimistic one or the ones that trust other people. And it's those traits that actually help them in life. And we know that both optimism and being relatively uh, trusting of other people is something that's helpful in how we lead our life in success, both professionally and um, privately. Yeah, and so if I'm trying to convince someone to adopt my, my lifestyle to, so they can be healthier, the more sort of I live it, right, the more actual brain proof I'm giving them rather than like the studies and the statistics. If they see me sort of radiantly healthy or able to run 5Ks now faster than I did in my 20s, right, there's, there's something about walking the talk that can give people hope, um, that would yeah. make it more likely for them so to that, change. So that was related to another study um, with kids. Maybe maybe you kind of got, um, I'm not sure if you, the two studies are mixed kind of in your mind. But um, the other study was a very, very classic study where kids um, watch an adult hitting a doll, right, acting violently. And then right. what happens when that kid is left alone with the same doll in the room, they are much more likely to act violently towards a doll. And this is just a very classic demonstration of how we copy the people around us. And it's, it's true not only for kids, it's true for adults as well. We um, copy what people think, what choices they make, um, even choices like what you decide to eat. If you eat a sandwich, I'm more likely to eat a sandwich if I'm nearby you. If you are feeling a certain feeling, you're, let's say, happy, I'm more likely to feel happy. Um, so we're very much affected from the people around us, um, much, much more than what we realize. But I think what we need to realize as well is that we are affecting those around us. We are affecting um, everyone from our family to our colleagues to just strangers on the subway. Any choices that we make when it's observed by others is more likely to change their own choices. And now this is always true, but it's very much true in our days because Nowadays, you go online and you see ratings of other people all the time. And you, th you see those ratings before you make your own decisions, right? So if you're deciding what to buy on Amazon or you're deciding which movie to watch, we always, almost always go and look at ratings. Um, and so we're very much influenced by what other people are thinking. And I think what's interesting about these kind of rating idea is that the ratings are not quite what we think they are. Because what we don't realize that these ratings are not ratings of independent individuals. Because when you go and rate uh, a book on Amazon or a song um, on Spotify, you are already viewing the ratings of everyone else. And those ratings are affecting your own. There's a great study that was um, conducted 
um, by Taylor et al. that was published in Science. And it, what it did, it manipulated ratings in a website. And it showed that if the first rating is positive, then the average ratings that come after it are 25% more likely to be positive. So the final ratings, 25% of the final ratings uh, will be influenced by that first rating because the first rating it influenced the second rating and those influence the third and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think the, the message from that is that we have to take these ratings with, with a grain of salt. Right. And, and also, if, if you've written a book on Amazon, ask your friends to rate it before your critics. Absolutely, absolutely. And you see these really interesting things where you have, you know, great reviews are followed with great reviews, great reviews, then you have one bad and then suddenly that's followed with like two or three bad ones. Um, so it's really interesting. Right. And, and it speaks to, you know, what, one of the things that I think is most powerful if we're trying to get people to adopt our lifestyle is like, you know, I can give I can give people a dozen books that to me are brilliant, but it can't compare to bringing someone to an event. You know, so the same people who wrote the books are now going to give a talk. You mm. think, why can't I just read the book or watch their YouTube talk? But you, you hang out with a bunch of people who have all, you know, a bunch of them who then get up and tell their own testimonial transformation story. You know, I was sick and miserable and crippled, and then I did this, and now look at me. And, you know, there's, there's a power to that that yeah. I think goes, goes far beyond the, the specific, specifics of the content. Yeah, it probably sticks in our mind more, you know. When we hear a talk, for example, there's the verbal, but there's also the visual, um, and there's the time and place where we are, and I think that helps us encode the information um, more so than perhaps just just a book. And of course, you know, I, I love books, but um, yeah, I think I think that's one reason why we may remember more from watching other people and watching speeches, for example, than, than just a written word, maybe. So I want to uh, cover one, one more topic, at least, if, depending on how much you know, time you have. Um, and this is the idea of agency. And you, you wrote at the beginning of Chapter 4, so on page 79, I just want to read these two sentences because it's, it's some of the, the best writing on, on health and, and psychology I've ever read. And you start out by saying, Imagine a world where fear is rational. In this world, people would scream at the top of their lungs at the mere sight of a cigarette. A heavy cream phobia and fear of red meat would be commonplace, and panic would creep up and down your spine as soon as you entered a moving vehicle. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, that is, that is so true when you're talking about the actual risks of what could get us, right? It's, it's um, yeah. you know, saturated fat foods, um, nicotine and motor vehicles. Mm -hmm. And yet you then follow that up with the, like, you've got the 10 leading causes of death. And then you've got the pho our most common phobias, which is spiders, snakes, heights, crowded spaces, dogs, thunder, you know, yeah. and like the first one to even come close to anything real is like, you know, fear of cancer is 11 and fear of death is 12. And so how does this relate to the topic of the chapter, which is about agency, about having control? Right. So so this comes to show that what we fear and what we should actually be afraid of is not the same thing. And one reason, um, not the only, but one reason that there's this um, difference from what we are actually afraid of and what we should be afraid of is things that we can control versus things that we cannot control. And really one of our great fears is not having control, not having agency. The idea that we cannot control our own lives, our own movement, is, is something that's very, very scary and um, causes great anxiety. And so anything that makes us feel like this control is restricted are things that we are afraid of. And I think one great example is flying. So a lot of people get anxious on, on a plane and the idea of flying. And yes, we're, we're partially perhaps um, afraid because of these kind of vivid images of, plane, of planes crashing and so on. But I think um, a lot of people realize that one of the main reasons that we're anxious of flying is that we have no control once, in the, once we are in the air. 
uh, once we're in the air, we cannot control what the plane is doing. You know, we cannot control. We can't get out if we want to. We're stuck there. Um, we can't even have. Uh, we don't have many decisions on what we're going to eat or anything that we're doing. And that's one reason that people really don't like flying. And on the other hand, most people have no problem with driving as long as they're in the uh, driving seat. You know, <laughs> and and of course, driving is much much more dangerous. Um, and I mean, we we see many um, images of of car accidents and so on. But but yet, it's not something that we're afraid of because we feel we are in control. If we're in control, it's going to be okay. Um, and then I give many other examples. You know, we're not so scared of medicating ourselves, but medicating ourselves is one of the things that we should be scared of. But we're not because it gives us a sense of control, right? So things that we feel we do have control on makes us feel confident and less anxious and things that we don't have control on uh, of more anxious. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you know, the, the, the evolutionary reading, reason for this is that we crave agency because if, we get, if something good happens to us, it's much better if we know what we did so we can keep doing it. Yeah, so, so there's a few speculations of why we love control so much. I mean, there are studies, for example, brain imaging studies that show that when we have a choice, when we have control, it's experienced by the brain as a reward. Reward region in the brain um, signals a reward signal when we make a choice ourselves, when we're in control. Um, and so the question is why? Why has our brain um, evolved to have this kind of architecture where it treats control and choice as a reward. And one of the reasons is that if there is, if we get something and we've, we have, um, we are the cause of that good thing, then we kind of have a blueprint of how to get it. You know, I give an example of, you know, you build um, a piece of furniture and then you get $100 for it. Well, that means that you know how to get $100 again in the future. Right. Um, You just build this furniture again and you sell it again and you get one hundred dollars. But if you get one hundred dollars without you doing anything, well, that's great. But now you don't have a blueprint of how how to get one hundred dollars again in the future. Right. So when we have control, when we are our agent um, of the outcome, then we are able to create that outcome again if it's a reward or to avoid the outcome. You know, if I did something that hurt me, like put my hand in the oven and got burned, well, that's pretty bad, but now I've learned something and I know that in order not to be burned, I need to not put my hand in the oven. But if I was just standing there in the kitchen and suddenly my hand got burned for no good reason at all, well, that's much more scary because I don't know how to avoid it in the future. Right. Um, and I guess that's those, those utterly horrible learned helplessness studies with the dogs. Right. Yes, absolutely. The kind of Martin uh, Seligman studies that show that really the worst thing that can happen to us, one of the worst things is that we feel we have no control and bad things happen to us and we can't control it. And when that what that happens, or at least we have a perception of that, that can cause depression and anxiety. Right. So I have a couple of questions um, about that. First is if if Having control, making choices, the ability to choose is experienced by the brain as a reward. Is the taking away of control experienced by the brain as a punishment or is it sort of neutral? Right. Correct. Yeah. Taking away control, having a sense that you don't have agency, that's experienced as a punishment. So I think, you know, this is really important as we try to convince other people, because one of the things you point out is if we want to have influence over other people, to some extent, we are it's a dance, right? We're trying to influence them and maybe control them a little bit. Mm-hmm. What are some, what are some you know, strategies that we can use when we're trying to change other people's beliefs, opinions, behaviors to, to leverage their desire for control and not make them, you know, not, not have a, uh, a backlash against us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So there's a really tight relationship between influence and control, when we influence, we are in some ways trying to control others. But the ironic thing is that people don't like the feeling that someone is influencing them partially because they don't like the idea that they are not in control. And so really, in order to influence, we need to give others a sense of control. We need to give others a greater sense of agency, a greater sense that they have a choice. 
Um, thinking about kids, it becomes really apparent. So anyone who has kids knows that kids always want to make their own choices, right? Especially the young ones, but also teenagers. You know, they want to press the button in the elevator. They want to tie their own shoes. They want to choose what they're going to wear. They're going to choose what they eat. It's obsessive um, desire for having control, for making a choice. And so, for example, instead of telling your kid, well, you have to eat this salad, you may say, oh, do you want to create your own salad here? What do you want to put in it? Cut it up, put it together. Then they're more likely to eat it or give them a choice between two different things. You know, do you want to wear this thing or that thing? Um, and the same thing with, with other people. If you are um, advising a client Instead of saying, look, I really think you need to do this, maybe guide them towards a choice. Make them um, believe that they're making the choice themselves. Or if there's more than one good option, give them a choice between one and two and have them uh, choose what they like. And I think there's a few caveats here. So sometimes people don't like making a choice, but what they still want to do is they want to have a choice on whether they're going to make the choice or not. So if you think about, you know, a very kind of uh, vivid example is sometimes we want we want the doctor to make a choice for us because mm -hmm. we realize that we don't have enough knowledge. We also maybe some don't want to make a, a huge choice that we will regret. But what we still want to do, we want to tell the doctor, hey, you make the choice for me, right? So it's still a choice. You still feel in control. You still feel agency. It's when that is taken away from you completely. Let's say you're in the hospital and the doctors are just making the choices for you without explaining, without giving you any opportunity for input to say, do you want to do something differently or not? That's when anxiety really, really comes in. And the other kind of caveat here is that um, we also don't like too many choices because then we just become overwhelmed. Okay. So I mean, it's something important to remember in psychology that um, behavior, human mind and human behavior is very um, nuanced. It's not like physics. It's not just there's a rule of gravity that's always correct in every situation. Um, there are many, many, many rules that govern the mind and the rules are flexible. It matters what context you are in, who the person is and many other things. Um, so sometimes people really want to have this kind of clear cut, always do this or always do that. But that's that's not quite the truth. And so in in this case, we I think we can use this idea of control and agency um, by telling people, you know, especially around their health, that if, if you eat right and exercise and do all the other things, like that's all in your control, as opposed to you know going down this medical chute. Like I, I think I think people are shocked when they read you know the the sources that you shared in the book about, you know, over medication and over treatment and, um, you know, that, that probably mammography is not such a great idea for most people and prostate exams, you know, tend to find more like all that stuff. Like they, once, once you get your, you know, your, uh, diagnosis, you're pretty much in the, the, the system. And there's a whole series of protocols that doctors are really going to push upon you partly because they believe in them and partly because they've heard of colleagues who were sued for not doing them. And so to kind of tell the story about before that all happens, you can, you know, you can create pretty much your own health destiny through your own actions. It feels like it would be a pretty compelling argument. Yeah, we can absolutely influence our own health with our behavior. I mean, behavior is one of the, the strongest uh, predictors of our health for sure now sometimes things are going to happen regardless you, you can be the best you know person who eats right and whatever and still bad things uh, physically will happen but um, yes indeed our behavior is really really important and I think there's not enough emphasis on this in um, for example government funding you know we put all this money into finding the the, the medication um, and developing and that's really really important but if people are just going to smoke or they're not going to take the medication when they're supposed to or they're really going to eat unhealthily and not exercise, well, that's, that's just going to have really bad outcomes. And I think there should be more emphasis on changing our behaviors because by changing our behaviors, we will be able to um, create much healthier societies. And there should kind of be a shift to... Put a little bit more emphasis on that. 
Because right. I mean, Which it's I... not it's not easy. It's not easy to change your behavior, right? So there should be research on what's the best way to do it. How can we help people change their behaviors? Yeah, which I think goes back to the uh, confirmation bias, which is that, you know, the um, inconvenient truth idea that, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in creating expensive products that can be sold to people for a profit, as opposed to, you know, no one's going to make money if I start eating broccoli and exercising. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 bro- the broccoli lobby is, doesn't exactly have a stronghold on, on Congress. Well, maybe, I mean, that's an interesting point. Maybe we could think of, of ways where people can make money out of it. <laughs> I'm, wor- I'm working on it. I'll, I'll, let you know if, I'll let you know if I figure it out. Um, so two, two more quick topics. I know you've, uh, you've given us a lot of time already. But the, you, you talk about curiosity and, like, the brain loves information in the same way that it loves, you know, plum cake and sex, that there's, there's dopamine that we get when we accrue information, as anyone who's been addicted to Instagram or Facebook or Googling can attest to. But it, again, it's not random and it's not neutral. There's certain types of information that we get hungry for and other types that we will do anything to stick our heads in the sand and not access. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so one of the things we find is that um, people prefer information um, that suggests good outcomes, right? And uh, people tend to want to avoid information that suggests bad outcomes. And this is one of the reasons that um, people don't go to medical screenings. They don't want to know the bad news um, or why we are happy to read all the positive reviews and we're not so happy to read the negative reviews, so we try to avoid them. Um So when we look at the brain, we find that the brain treats knowledge about the good stuff as if it is a reward just like food or water. And it treats knowledge about the bad stuff as something to be avoided, just like electric shocks, for example. Um, So it's really deep um, in, you know, the deep areas, subcortical regions in our brain that's regulating the type of information that we move forward towards and the type of information that we try to avoid. Uh-huh. So, so if you're writing a book about health, you, you, sh- you shouldn't title it, like, do this or die? Because <laughs> uh, it do seems like, you know, the, um, like there's so much, you know, like the click, the whole clickbait thing is like we're, you know, it's, it seems like there's, there's, um, there's a whole industry designed to get us to be informed about something out of fear of loss. But you're saying it doesn't, doesn't quite work that way? Um, well, I mean, the question, there, the question is whether you could have the same title that suggests something good, you know, do this and flourish. Um, will, that, will that get you more clicks or more? Uh-huh. Um, so it's important to remember that this is one aspect. So one aspect is I want to learn about the good stuff. The other aspect is I want to learn about stuff that I've never known about before. And the third thing is I want to learn about stuff that is helpful. So these are the three most important things when we um, are deciding what we want to know, what we don't want to know. So again, we want to know about the good stuff versus bad stuff. But we also want to know about things that are helpful versus less helpful. So if there's something extremely helpful, even if it's negative, um, that that has value in and of itself. So I kind of talk it in the book as it's, you know, a calculator, as if we have a calculator in our brain and it's putting in these different values. It's putting a value for is this good or bad? It's putting a value in for is this useful or not? And it's putting a value for, oh, is this new and surprising or not? Right. And Mm -hmm. so you could imagine that while I'll get a low score on good, bad, I will get a pretty high score on useful. Right. So all these things matter. So it's not just one thing. I mean, we do. And and so but, you know, but still. So you can see a lot of people would go to medical screenings, right, because it's useful. But some people for them, the score for the oh, I really don't want to know the bad stuff is so high that they don't go to medical screenings, although it's useful. Mm-hmm. So if you can get something that's both good, useful, and surprising, that's the best. Gotcha. So, so if if you want to promote your medical screening or something, or or something, you could say this is brand new. We've we've just discovered this new mark biomarker. Right. That could um, you know ensure that you live a long, healthy life, or something. 
of that sort. Yeah, that, that's really useful. So, you know, good, good surprising, and helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, is that, is that kind of our universal brain functioning? Because I can think of a lot of people who it seems like are really drawn to the negative. Mm. Like, I feel, I, I feel that in myself a little bit. Like, if I see two headlines and one of them tells me that the world's going to end tomorrow... I'm kind of, I've, you know, I take a sort of pleasure in, in like miserable information. Is, is that common or? Yeah. So there's a few different questions. First, at first it does matter. There's a whole, I have a whole chapter on, on what kind of state you are in. And once you're in different states, different things matter. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But the other uh, thing to say is that um, you probably don't believe that tomorrow the world will end. So it's more just kind of entertainment, right? Um, and the third thing to say is that when I, when I mentioned we want good information versus bad information, it's mostly good information with regards to ourselves. So if it's, um, you know, if it's bad information about someone else, that's fine. We don't, we don't necessarily try to avoid that. Okay. It's Uh just, it's just, it's about ourselves, the bad information that we try to avoid. But yes. Um, so there's, you know, I have a chapter in the book that's called state and that chapter says, you know, everything that I've told you actually changes in different states. So, for example, when you're under stress, that really changes the way that we process information. Under stress, we want more information and we're more likely to believe and take into account the negative information when, we, when we're under stress. Um, and so that also explains why, you know, if someone is depressed or extremely anxious, they're also more drawn to negative information. Mm. So, so it kind of becomes, and, and this is one of, one of the uh, the quotes that I wrote down, and, and you know, I'm, I'm thinking about tattooing somewhere where I could access it under professional circumstances. Under threat, we automatically absorb cues about danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so yeah, and that's that's very adaptive. You know, if we are living in an environment that's very uh, dangerous, you know, think about our ancestors. There's a lot of predators around. So if you're living in that kind of environment with lots of dangers, well, it's really important to be able to um, be hypervigilant to any kind of negative cues around. Right, which, which also which speaks to if I'm trying to influence somebody else and I'm trying to tell them about how great I'm feeling and I'm having an argument with them, then I'm putting them in a state where they can't take in the positive. Right. Yes, absolutely. That's true. Mm-hmm. And I guess if I, you know, so if I'm depressed or if someone's depressed and they're, they're seeking out information that is likely to stress them out, then, yes. then what, are, what are some other interventions that we can do for ourselves and for others if we see someone in kind of this, this um, state of, of, of stress uh, with, the, with the vicious cycle of looking for information that's going to validate and intensify the stress? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's trying to change their state, right? Um, and the question is, can you do that with, for example, humor? Can you do it with um, one, one thing? And I don't I think there's a little bit about this in this book is about the power of anticipation. And there's about it, a lot about it in the optimism bias as well. That one of the things that matter most for a state is um, whether we're anticipating something good or dreading something bad. So if we can create something good that people can anticipate, that can help with our current mental state. Um, so if someone is very stressed out, but they, you know, but you organize, a, you know, something fun for them to do that weekend or, you know, a nice, a nice holiday or something, that could ease the stress. Mm-hmm. So that, that's like the story you tell about the two, the two men who are in, in, in their bedrooms and the, one of them's in a miserable prison cell and he's, he's thrilled and the other one's in a comfortable bedroom at home and he's miserable because the next day they're going to trade places. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what yeah, matters is that- what matters is what goes on in our mind and what goes in our mind is not only the result of what's happening to us now, but mostly the result of what we think is going to happen to us later. Right. And I think what, what I just took away from what you said, which I think is, is such a good question and it's so hard for us to ask it in the moment is how can I change their state? Because we try to think, how can I change their mind? Mm, Meaning, mm. get them to believe what we believe. But right. the, 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 you know, the, um, the grad school move here, as opposed to the elementary school move, is to change their state. 
make, right. make, make them happier. Right. And so, that will automatically make them more um, open to what you have to say. Yeah. So if you're arguing with your spouse, maybe have a, a little break and, you know, put on a nice music, uplifting music or watch 30 minutes of, of a comedy or something. Um, right. Yeah. The clown nose never worked for me. So I, I don't recommend that. <laughs> so this is yeah, this is so great. So um, you've you've convinced me um, of many things in this book, one of which is I have to read your first book, The Optimism Bias, because it sounds like I'm. I'm missing some of the picture, but this is this is such helpful work, and I think because because all of these circuits are so um, hardwired into us from from an evolutionary perspective, I think there's a a responsibility that someone has when they hear this interview or they read the book to kind of work on themselves so that we can we can do the counter move. So that we can be more effective in a world where where other people are just sort of doing the thing that comes naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think the first step is awareness, right? We're not aware, as you said, of all of these things of how the brain works and you know what exactly changes the way that we process information and what exactly changes our mind. And just becoming aware um, can make quite a difference—a difference in understanding how we come to our own beliefs and decisions, and also understanding of how everyone around us comes to decisions and beliefs. Um, and plus, you know, I think awareness is just so fascinating. Being aware of how the brain works is just so fascinating in and on its own right. As well, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's like having—it's like discovering the user's manual and those yeah. those forty buttons that you just didn't even really pay attention to before actually do stuff. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we have so much to learn. You know, the, the, the lovely thing about the brain that it's so complex, it's going to be a long time before we understand what's going on there completely. Um, right. If ever, right? Yeah. Um, so h- how can people um, stay in touch with you, follow your continued research and work? Um, well, uh, the books we have, um, I'm not, I'm not a big social media person myself. My uh, lab does have a Twitter account, the Effective Brain, but we have a website, um, effectivebrain.com and it has, um, a lot of our publications, both the academic ones and the non-academic ones, you know, op-eds in different places, list of books. Is that effective or affective? Affective with an A as in emotional, you know, affect. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, and I'll I'll include a link in the show notes. So I just want people who are who are listening to be able to find it on the first try. So affectivebrain.com, and the books are the Influential Mind and the Optimism Bias. Mm-hmm. And Tali Sharot, thank you so much. This has been so helpful, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to become, you know, pers- persuasion ninjas instead of sort of like I have been for most of my life, sort of a, a blundering fool trying to beat people into. Uh, Right thinking. So thank you so much for taking the time and for all the work you do. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a really nice conversation. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with lots of links at plantyourself.com slash 253. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 252 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com, where you can also get the email newsletter that goes out whenever I remember to send it. I mentioned WellStart Health at the beginning. If you are a longtime podcast listener, you may recall an interview that I did with Olivia Kelly, who is the CEO of WellStart Health. Well, we've stayed in touch. We've collaborated. We've talked a lot. And Josh Lajani and I have decided to join as co-founders along with Olivia and Chief Medical Officer Boyana Yankovic. And we're going to be bringing the message of big change and the message of plant-based health to a much larger audience than we can just reach through the big change program. So we'll be bringing evidence-based telemedicine to organizations, to corporations, to municipalities. And our goal is to prevent and reverse chronic disease by getting millions of people to shift their lifestyles to one that's more plant-based, more movement-based, and one that empowers them to become better versions of themselves. 
So this is all very new, very exciting. Um, the podcast will remain as it is. And if you're listening and you would like to talk about bringing the WellStart program to your organization to help other people be more like you and to be healthier and to save the company money and to increase productivity and morale and yada, 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 give me a shout at hj at plantyourself.com and we will have a chat. In garden news, we've had a real good week of rain. So I think the ground, as soon as it warms up sufficiently, will be ready for some early planting and certainly we can get the greenhouse rolling. In running news, there's not much running news. I did eight miles with Geo on Saturday and not feeling great in my back. So I'm going to take Josh's advice and work on things like uh, Versa Climber and elliptical and walking on the treadmill at, a, at an incline. So I have to go find a gym again because the pounding is, is not helping me heal. And I really want to do a good job in the marathon coming up in, gosh, a little over a month. So it's time for the thanks. First of all, thanks, as always, to Will Ridenauer, Cora player, whose music, the Dance of Peace of Ali Don, is the theme music for the show. If you like it, check out his other stuff at willridenauer.com. Make a purchase. Make him happy that he allowed me to use this without uh, me paying him anything. And, of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tanny Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolman, Obadilia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josita, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ronzo Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Serre, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Risha Rosen, Mike Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, <laughs> Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Omelet, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kersels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rudlett, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Wilkowski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, and Teresa K- K- Carol. That was the best I've ever done it. For your generous support of the podcast, that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.